Hello, and welcome to The Big Question. It's a new podcast series where we explore a range of perspectives on the major themes guiding the economy and the market's longer term. I'm your host, John Briggs, and for this episode, we'll be discussing the medium-term fallout from the banking turmoil in March that led to the closing of SBB and Signature Bank in the U.S., and the takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS in Europe. I'm happy to be joined by two experts in their field on this subject. First, our own chief U.S. economist, Kevin Cummins, who's done extensive work in a short time on the potential economic fallout from this most recent episode. Second, I'm joined by Charles Gav, co-founder of the GavCal Group. For those that do not know Charles, he's had an extensive financial career, first at an independent research firm. Then in the 80s, in the role of CIO, he grew the money management firm Christator Eaton to a size of $10 billion in AUM, which was eventually sold to Alliance Capital. He then, along with his son, Louis Vincent, and friend Anatole Kaleksi, founded GavCal, the powerhouse global research and advisory firm that needs, I think, no further introduction, as it's been a household name in our industry for over two decades. First, thank you both for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. I'd like to start close to home, or at least close to the origin of the recent turmoil. Kevin, what are your thoughts on the impact of the March stress in the banking system on the U.S. over the medium term? We've gotten through this period of, of near-term panic. You know, there's been a little bit more sense of calm, but some uncertainty about how this is really going to play out in the data. How do you, so what are your thoughts on the impact on the fundamental side of things and then on our views on the outlook for the U.S. economy, the inflation, the Fed? The U.S. economy has been growing at a fairly uh, sluggish pace over the past year or so. You know, after the reopening, when GDP almost picked up to about a 6% uh, annualized rate in 21, we saw a pretty dramatic slowing last year as uh, fiscal transfers waned and um, tightening we saw in financial conditions as the Fed uh, began to raise rates uh, last March. So GDP, you know, performed subpar growth. We saw below 1% on a Q4 or Q4 basis. And you know, we started off this year on a fairly strong note in January, particularly on the labor market. Um, GDP will get later uh, in, in the end of April. Um, we'll see how that comes in. But, you know, I, I think the backdrop is fairly soft here uh, for the U.S. And this is all going ahead of uh, the latest what seems to be an inevitable credit crunch that the U.S. is going to experience here. Um, that's going to sap domestic demand. Um, in terms of the initial piece of information that we're going to be really focused on uh, is the Fed Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey. Um, the last survey that we got in January um, uh, showed a significant tightening in lending standards. And of course, this is all uh, well before uh, the turmoil that we saw in early to mid-March uh, in the banking sector. Um, you know, the, it's not surprising that we've seen a tightening in lending standards. Obviously, the Fed has been very aggressive, hiking rates almost 500 basis points in about 13 months, the past 13 months. So lending standards have shown a, a significant net tightening even before the turmoil here. And presumably, that's going to be much more severe since March. Um, we already saw some initial commentary from the Fed in the beige book that tightening standards, which covered conditions through April 10th, that uh, standards were further tightened uh, through early April. Um, we've seen it in some of the data. Consumer uh, and business confidence surveys have been very weak. Uh, the NFIB showed uh, smaller firms are having difficulty accessing credit. So, 
you know, we're as economists, we're we're always trying to gauge how much of a uh, uh, you know pluses and minuses go into adding up GDP, and I think this is clearly going to be a pretty significant negative. Um, I dusted off one of the Atlanta Fed's models on tightening and lending standards, and um, as I mentioned in the the past two senior loan officer opinion surveys, <clears throat> uh, we've seen a net. 40% and net 45% of banks tightening standards on CNI loans to large and medium-sized firms. Um, and I guess taking a step back uh, and applying updated information on the Atlanta Fed model, uh, when we've seen a net 25% of banks tightening lending standards to large and medium-sized firms, that typically is associated with about a one percentage point drag on real GDP the following quarter. So the fact that we're already above those levels prior to the latest flare-up, um, you know, suggests that we're going to have a pretty sizable drag uh, throughout the remainder of this year. Um, <clears throat> presumably, lending standards have tightened over the past you know month or so, even further. So. We're going to um, likely tip into a, a recession later this year. Uh, in our baseline forecast, we have top-line GDP, uh, a fairly mild downturn of about half a percentage point uh, this year. Um, but I think the risks are pointing that it could be more severe than that. And you know, any sort of um, contraction in the economy is going to open up the output gap you know, driven by slower domestic activity. And you have to remember that we're talking about smaller banks, which tend to focus their businesses at home. Um, and any sort of spillover on, on the inflation sides could be problematic. And, and certainly a, we'll see a, a disinflationary impulse from this, in my opinion, uh, that could potentially be quite sizable. So, you know, it's, it's certainly um, a, a domestic inflation that has been areas of the most problematic uh, in the past couple of years could see a, a bit of a turnaround. So I think from the Fed's perspective, the best course of action, I think, in, in my own opinion, is that they uh, wait and see how things unfold in the coming quarters. Um, the expectation is that they potentially are going to hike again in, in early May, but I think that's only going to uh, exacerbate perhaps the severity of any recession that we're likely to experience later this year. All right. So Charles, do you agree, disagree, have a different view? Also, I'm going to make this a two-part question. Um, in addition to the fundamental side of things, you know, having all this experience in similar periods in the past, um, any worries about like asset classes, valuations, CRE? I mean, personally, I feel like we're all watching commercials, so it's probably going to be something else, but both the fundamental side and and just you know given your knowledge, how do you think this plays out on the asset side as well? I'm concerned. You see, the um, you have the economy, which is basically moving stuff around people and so on, and you have the operating system of the economy, which is uh, money. So money is basically the operating system of the economy, and there are two independent things. So once in a while, you have a problem with the operating system which can backfire on the economy badly. In other words, once in a while, there is something wrong in the, in the operating system of the economy, the monetary, and it leads to massive problems, and people don't understand where it's coming from because the economy was kind of okay. So if I use that as a, 
theme to present my views, I would say that uh, we have had false prices for the last, what, 15, 20 years, both in the U.S. and Europe, as far as interest rates and exchange rates were concerned. And uh, interest rates are the price of the future. That's how you compute the future value of something or the present value of something else. And the exchange rates are basically the geographic where you should print, put your money. And to give you an example of something that I found absolutely extraordinary, is that when we had the 1999 crisis in Asia, uh, the IMF went into Asia, and for the following 20 years, the only goal of every Asian country was never to see the, the IMF again. That's how they manage their economy. So they manage their economy to have massive card account surpluses, which translated into massive foreign exchange reserve, which they put in our central banks in the US and Europe. And that led to a massive decline in the real rates on our economies. But due to the Russian crisis and everything now, a lot of these countries can buy their oil in their own currency, which implies that they don't need to have a card account surplus, which, don't, which yeah, they don't need to invest their reserves in our countries anymore because they don't need to have reserves to buy oil. And more of us are starting to trade with each other in their own currencies rather than in the dollar. So what I'm trying to tell you is that we are going to enter into a world where you have something like $5 trillion of working capital that were used in international trade or oil. And since the only place where that, these dollars have our legal tender is the U.S., they may flow back to the U.S. and nobody will know what to do with them. So I'm extremely interested by what the Fed does. But basically, you have a tsunami coming and everybody's talking about the tide. I'm a little bit more worried about the tsunamis and by the tide. And what it will lead to, I haven't got a clue, but I know it's coming. And it will disrupt. And uh, according to all the work that I do, for example, long rates in the U.S. should be given the nominal growth rate of the U.S. economy around 6%, 55 to 6 And everybody's happy because there are 340 things about buying because we are going to have a recession in the U.S. I was in the U.K. in the 1970s. I remember vividly that you had something in the UK which most economists didn't expect, which was an inflationary depression. The GDP went down by 7% and prices went up by 20 at the same time. So the idea that we are going to automatically uh, a recession and inflation falling is something that I know is not true. We, we have had plenty of cases where you had the economy falling out of bed and inflation going through the roof at the same time. So what I'm trying to tell you is that uh, the banking system is always the first one to suffer from this massive mispricing in the economy. Uh, the beauty of the U.S. system, it's uh, the, you have plenty of liquidity crisis that may or may not come to fruition. In, the, in Europe, it's a solvency crisis because the only assets that these banks have in their balance sheets are government bonds of countries that will not be able to repay the debt. So my point is that we have been following foolish policies for 20 years, and uh, a few of the results are going to come, and it's nothing cyclical. It's totally structural. So 
I want to hone in on one thing you said, which was the inflationary recession. And if we just thinking about the US, so I want to come back to Europe in a second. So that's, I mean, for me, it seems like that there's the potential given some of the labor market dynamics, again, not calling for an inflationary recession, but there's a lot of the dynamics in the UK actually sound kind of similar to what you talked about back in this back in the 70s. But for the US, where does that put the Fed? Because you're, you, you know, if you have a higher level of inflation, I think rates are going to be, need to be at 6%, but you're already starting to kind of break the banking system. I mean, over the long term, I think you can get to that 6% level if that's, you know, what the, where we end up being. But in the near term, are they just stuck? Like it's a lose-lose situation? In the 70s, again, um, the central bankers try to think to accommodate the short term. And at the end of the short term, we had Volcker, basically had to put in short interest rate at 20 and the long interest rate at 15. But today we cannot do that because the size of the debt is so big that if we were to do that, the budget deficit would absolutely go exponential in two seconds. I think interest payment in the US this year is going to be, what, 800 billion? So if you double the interest rate, the, the, strangely enough, the US have not used that very long period of very low short rates or long rates to uh, lengthen the duration of their bond. They maintain a fairly short duration. So they will they absolutely murdered. So um, to be perfectly honest, for the first time in my career, I keep telling everybody that that cares to listen. In the US and in Europe, I have no idea how we are going to get out of this one because there is no market exit. It will have to be a political crisis of some sort. You've mentioned Europe uh, shifting over to your side of the pond, so to speak. Um, you had a piece the other day, the other day, probably a couple of weeks ago at this point, but on the idea of a secondary depression and your concern about a secondary depression for Europe. I just thought that was really interesting perspective. Can you give a 10,000 foot view on that? Maybe walk through just the high level. And then um, given what we've seen in the financial sector, I think it's a particularly poignant risk. So yes. uh, it goes back to the 19th century. In the 19th century, for example, in the US, you had massive capital spending to build the railways. So you had to build uh, the first steel for the railways. And then you had to build steel to build the steel mill that will do the railways. And then everything. So it had a multiplying effect. And then when the railways were finished, suddenly the demand for steel, I think it was 1873 or something like that, collapsed. Absolutely collapsed. And just, you had a bunch of guys that went immediately bankrupt. The guys that could not service the debt. You see what I mean? Because uh, they were that negative cash flow, they went bust. So you had the first depression. And in 1883, you had the second depression that came, where the first one was more or less finished, because you had the guys that could not repay the capital. The guys that could service the debt, still 10 years later, they had to repay the capital. And unfortunately, since prices had fallen between the two, they could not repay the capital. And the banks were not in a position to re-push the capital. So if you go back to, let's say, Okay, the European crisis was, what, 2012? We basically had to collapse interest rates to prevent Italy and France going bankrupt. You remember, we went to whatever it takes. Interest rates at zero or negative. Uh, so we should massive the amount of debt. But now inflation is at 7% in Germany. And the Germans are not amused. 
and all. Uh, so we, uh, the Germans, may insist on having interest rates at 7%, but if interest rates remain at 7%, the French or the Italians will not be able 10 years later, which is the size roughly of the, the duration of the bonds, uh, to repay and the principal and service the debt. France and Italy need interest rates at 2% and forget about inflation. But the Germans are not amused by inflation and they will want to put interest at seven. So for the first time, we have a real divergence between the South and the North. And you can't have a policy that will satisfy both. So that's an, we are living in an interesting moment. That's what I'm trying to tell you is that the asset in the banks, the banks in the last 10 years in Europe haven't been lending to businesses. Most businesses have positive cash flow in Europe. The banks have been lending to governments. And so they have on the, on the both sides of the balance sheet, government debt as a guarantee and as an asset. They have been lending to the, the government at the same time. So I don't know how are you going to do it. I have no idea. Once again, I'm very interested because uh, we have been so foolish with the way we have been managing the subtle banks' interest rate exchange rate for the last 20 years that I'm looking at that uh, our, our successes, we'll learn a lot about what we should not do as a subtle bank as an economist. So I think, uh, Kevin, you and I have always been sympathetic that, you know, negative interest rates, low in the economy is never really particularly um, appropriate at that kind of level. So thinking about, as you've had a minute to think about some of the things Charles has said, you know, what are your thoughts on the, on the U.S. side of things? I mean, do you think that we're in an economy that can handle 6% interest rates. I mean, in Charles' perspective, we might not have a choice. You know, it might just be the only way out with a lot of pain. I mean, you know, long-term perspective, I and mean, what are your thoughts on, what's your reaction to some of the things that he's worked through here? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if that's the case where rates going to have to remain, uh, you know, elevated relative to where we've been over the past course of the past 20 years or so, obviously that would be a, a hit to growth uh, here in the U.S. and trend growth. I mean, I guess, um, you know, from the potential of any sort of counter-cyclical fiscal policy that Washington would put in place, um, I, I think you touched on a good thing, as, or, or you've touched on the, the important thing from, from the U.S. perspective is we're probably not going to get any sort of help from the fiscal authorities in a timely fashion uh, to try to dig us out of this. Um, it'll probably all be on the Fed's uh, shoulders that they'll have to start cutting interest rates potentially later this year. Um, but, you know, on the fiscal side, if we do see any sort of counter uh, cyclical policy put in place, I, I think, you know, I have some sympathy to the idea that you're going to get upward pressure on treasury yields. Um, and we'll see. I mean, typically, uh, prices would come down if your labor market is, you know, slowing and, and we start to see some slack opening up. I mean, um, even before this latest episode, there's been some scope for some risk of, of moderating inflation here in the U.S. I mean, labor supply is coming back on, albeit at the margin. Um, and I do think there's some scope for wage growth to be absorbed by profit margins. Um, so, you know, as far as, um, I think there's pretty good 
or strong case from policymakers here in the U.S. Um, to to put things on on hold here in in terms of uh, their rate hike cycle. Um, and I think if if the economy is, is languishing, we're going to start to see uh, more aggressive Fed policy, more so than you know what what we're going to get from uh, policymakers in Washington on the fiscal side. Yes, from my perspective, one thing that I worry about, and I'm going to flip this last question back to Charles, is um, you know as we look at kind of the pain that might ne- might be coming going forward, it's very it's a broad comment, but everything that looked great when rates were at zero, that now doesn't look so hot at five percent. I think that we've only scratched the surface on some of this stuff, you know, with whether it's CRE again, everybody's pointing at that, so we'll see. But private assets, private equity. And it's not necessarily this stuff is anything systemic, but I think there's a lot of losses that probably need to be marked down. And that, would, in my view, limits some of that growth capital that could funnel, that has been funneling into those sectors of the economy um, as you kind of bleed out some of those losses. That's even if it isn't a systemic thing. So I think that there, whether we're going to, Charles, your your future world or something you know, more, I guess I should say, in between, I do think the new interest rate regime in the next decade is not going to look like the last one, and that transition is going to cause some pain in places. So with that lead in, Charles, A, do you agree, and B, what asset class can investors hide in in this, these scenarios? Is it a gold thing? Is it a real estate thing? I'm not sure we all want to do that at this stage. Where, where, where does one hide? Okay, I will try to go to... First, I would like to make a point. The idea that yeah. low, low interest rates favor growth is simply not true. Low interest rates favor the growth of the uh, of Wall Street, but it's terrible for Main Street because uh, low interest rates lead to the forget the fellows that have assets can borrow against these assets, buy existing assets, the price of which go up. So they become richer and the leverage in the system goes up. But since they don't invest in new machines, productivity goes down. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and at the end of the day, you have revolution in the street. I wrote that in 2012 on a paper called The High Cost of Free Money. Free money always destroys an economy by misallocating capital on a grand scale. So the first point is that the idea is that zero in low interest rates favor growth is simply not true. What's good for a growth is the cost of interest, the interest rate being as close as possible to the marginal growth rate of the economy for the only the efficient fellows to have access to capital. You don't, want, you don't want the guys in Wall Street to have access to capital to build their leverage buyouts. That never creates growth, it creates disharmony, social disharmony. So that's my first point. The second point, the point I'm trying to make is that to everybody, there can only two things available in the market that you can buy, any market. The first one, is a contract, a French bull, a US bull, it's a contract between you and the French or the US government, or a piece of equity. So the only place in the world where you should have contracts are in Asia, and perhaps in Latin America because the yields are very high. As far as equities are concerned, you can have your equities wherever you can in the world, but you should not touch equities that are basically under the control of governments in the US or in Europe. And as far as gold is concerned, what we're discovering, I discussed once with Robson Friedman and I asked him, uh, what do you think of the, of the gold exchange standard? He told me we, we can do better. And the reality is that we have not. <laughs> We've been doing much worse. 
So basically, I believe that all these countries outside of what we call the non-West, the non-West countries are going to create their own monetary system that will be based on energy, their own bond market, and probably for some kind of a settling gold. And this will be a very robust and non-satralized system, which implies that our satralized system will go down and that we will have foreign exchange controls between our countries and their countries. We'll try to prevent our savings from going in their part of the world. So my point is simple. Is no bonds in the West can have good companies in the West. It doesn't matter providing the government doesn't have a seat in the board, on the board. And you can have your shares wherever you want. And you have plenty of buying opportunities in Indian bonds and so on. And the country which is emerging as the biggest winner of all that mayhem is India. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like we've only scratched the surface here, but I have to say we are out of time in this episode. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Share your perspective. I may, we may be plumbing into some of these issues down the road, if you don't mind. Um, and I will say that if listeners are not already subscribers to Charles and Gav Cal's work, I can't recommend it highly enough. And to our listeners, be sure to follow us on social media to get other episodes in the series the moment they're published. And if you like what you heard today, hit that like button so it's easier for others to find. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.